Well, the referendum has been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. Um, with me, Jack Good, and my co-host, Brian Mann. Hey guys, how you doing? What's up? So Brian, yes or no, we're going to avoid fudges today for a change with Brexit. Beautiful. Are we clear on the backstop? No. Was David Davis in the SAS? Technically, no. He was in the reserves. This is yes or no? Okay, we've got fudge already. <laughs> Is the position put forward by the UK acceptable to the EU? No. Are Ireland and the EU united on this? Yes. Is the British cabinet united on this? No. Has anything changed? Since the first podcast, no. (laughs) So, well, nothing may have changed with this backstop solution, proposal, fudge... One thing that has changed is Ireland's relationship with the European Union. So we're going to speak with um, Dr. Catherine Simpson of the Manchester Metropolitan University. Next, the paper we referenced throughout the interview is a paper she'd written on it. It's called The Model EU Citizen Explaining Irish Attitudes Towards the EU. We will have a link in the show notes as well. And you can also find it on her own Twitter account. So Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. One of the phrases that jumped out from your paper was Sponger Syndrome to describe Ireland's relationship with the EU. Could you just maybe explain what's meant by Sponger Syndrome? Yeah, so Sponger Syndrome really is the phrase that has been uh, termed for kind of really how Ireland viewed its net benefits from the EU when it joined uh, back in 1973. So really what we have seen is that um, since 1973, obviously the Republic of Ireland has been a net beneficiary of the European Union and that has very much been in terms of European Regional Structural Development Funds uh, and also the Common Agricultural Policy. And that really has kind of shaped in some respects Ireland's relationship with the European Union. Always kind of that phrase of what the EU could do for us rather than what Ireland could do for the European Union. And the EU has often really been viewed as kind of a source really of additional uh, exchequer funding for poor EU member states. And kind of Irish politicians during this time, kind of back in the the 70s, viewed that kind of begging bowl mentality and kind of, you know, really what could could Brussels do for the Irish economy? So is Ireland in, in this situation kind of like the teenager who's used to getting money suddenly grows up a little bit or the economy develops and you get a bit richer and then suddenly you're expected to give more. Is that a fair representation? It is perhaps now. So really kind of, as I said, uh, since 1973, Ireland was a net beneficiary. That changed back in 2014 uh, when it actually became a net contributor and when Ireland actually left the EU financial bailout between the IMF and the Troika as well. From 73. Ireland has received almost 50 billion euros in terms of net contributions. But Brexit will really change this. It's unlikely in a post-Brexit environment that EU member states' uh, budgetary contributions will remain the same once the UK UK leaves the European Union after the, the transition period. And I think it's really important to stress 
after the transition period because during that two-year period between 2019 and 2021, the UK will continue to pay into the, into the budget. So really what we're talking about is from January 2022, there's going to be roughly a 13 billion euro shortfall which will need to be paid. And Ireland really kind of should be prepared to pay some of these increased contributions to the EU budget. And there have been some kind of speculative and tentative reports that this kind of increase in figures could be around the 200 million mark uh, to uh, from Ireland to the EU budget. You talk about you know this budget 2022 and Ireland expected to contribute um, mm-hmm. and Ireland's kind of positive attitude towards the EU in terms of the beg and bowl. Why didn't Ireland's attitude towards the EU change uh, significantly as a result of the financial bailout and what some people would see as the, the stringent terms imposed by the Troika and the ECB? This is one of probably the most kind of striking um, scenarios in terms of attitudes towards the European Union in Ireland, because you would really expect, in particular, uh, with the onset of the economic and financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, and obviously the arrival of the Troika in, in Dublin, to that really affect Irish attitudes. But it really didn't. There is quite a lot of Eurobarometer data that really does pinpoint to this period kind of from autumn 2009 right the way up until kind of spring 2014, which very much places the EU as the institution that is the best place to take kind of effective action against this economic and financial crisis by, you know, kind of say 29% kind of say support for the EU right in comparison to say maybe 13 for the Irish government. This is kind of twofold. You can really stem EU uh, attitudes towards the EU in that kind of the start of something uh, different, really when Ireland voted no to Nice back in 2001, and obviously then as well uh, back in 2007 when it voted no to the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, And this is when we really saw the kind of emergence of a new popular uh, scepticism in Ireland. And really this kind of polarisation of opinions is a consequence of referendums. This is something that is is really difficult when you hold referendums. It's either a yes, no uh, answer. And also as well in the case of Ireland, you know, we've had nine EU-related referendums throughout the, the history of the state. And I think there's definitely a sense of kind of disenchantment among the Irish electorate saying, hang on, why are we constantly being asked to vote on such complex EU issues. And really what you saw was the economic context changed dramatically uh, from Lisbon 1 to Lisbon 2. Um, and actually what you saw then was in a lot of opinion polling data uh, that the Irish electorate really recognised that Ireland was much better being part of the EU project, better, you know, as a, as a force as opposed to kind of in splendid isolation. And that really did kind of weather the storm during that Troika period. And, you know, current public opinion figures, you know, for the European Union in Ireland is roughly around 80%. The Irish are the most positive supporters of the European Union after Luxembourg in the EU. Catherine, can I just pick up on the uh, popular scepticism you're talking there? I think you were saying between 2001 and 2008. What exactly did that consist of? What were the kind of issues that were concerning people or was there one issue in particular that jumped out? 
it's kind of a culmination of things. So really, this it starts to become challenged probably in the early 2000s. And this was really as a consequence of the Celtic Tiger. And that led Dublin very much into conflict with the European Union over its management of the Irish economy. Uh, and the Irish government at the time were very were criticised for its refusal to dampen the Celtic Tiger uh, and also because of the substantial tax concessions for foreign direct investment at the time which the European Commission did and still does regard as kind of breaking the spirit of, or if not really the law of the European single market. So you had that on the one hand, you had that context between the Irish government and the European Union. But on the other hand as well, people in Ireland tend to focus on almost national or the intergovernmental aspects uh, of EU membership rather than say focusing on on policy making um, aspects of the EU institutions. So really what this does then is that it shifts public opinion towards kind of a sharing of sovereignty idea and that focuses on an encroachment really from the EU on Irish values in terms of identity and culture. And as a consequence then, you know, when you're talking about Irish public opinion, it's not a single entity. It's a complex set of, you know, overarching judgments with many different facets. And that really resulted in uh, what we saw with the first rejection of Nice and also with the rejection of Lisbon in 2007. So it's a, it's a culmination of things, really. And that continues uh, up until now. And I think Brexit is something that will be kind of the next big challenge for Irish public opinion. And it's just interesting, like you frame it there as public opinion, because one of the striking pieces from your paper was the kind of agreement among the political establishment bar the Greens and Sinn Féin on the benefits of the European Union. I mean, are you saying there's maybe a divergence on the issue of European Union between public opinion and, you know, political establishment bar Sinn Féin and the Greens? Yeah, we could we could well see that. And that's kind of something we have seen certainly in the past. You know, the political establishment, you know, whether you were kind of Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael are very kind of united uh, in terms of their support for the European Union and their their stance on it. And we've certainly seen that replicated again going forward in Brexit negotiations currently under the Fianna Gael government. And, you know, this kind of debate has, has come out in uh, in the mass public or among public opinion about this potential Irexit debate, something that the government certainly haven't uh, latched onto. So we might see polarisation between between kind of the government level and the public uh, opinion level in Ireland, but not to the extent of what we've seen in some other countries. Generally speaking, you know, the kind of the, the government stance and the mass public opinion stance is relatively kind of cohesive and coherent on this issue uh, in Ireland. But, you know, Brexit may change that. The kind of focus has been on, on the money and kind of on the intergovernmental aspects of it. But what are the other benefits to being a member of, of the European Union for Ireland? Besides money? Yeah, besides money, what what is it? I think one of the most striking things about EU membership at the moment is that more than half of Ireland's current population uh, wasn't actually born when Ireland voted to join the EEC, uh, as it then was known, the European Economic Community, back in 1972, and then exceeded in 1973. And it really was, you know, it was one of the most significant steps the country has taken on its kind of journey as an independent nation uh, and most of us really are actually not or you know do not remember what it was like prior to EU membership and really you know some of those kind of aspects that touch upon every day of Irish life from you know how we work 
travel shop, uh, the quality of our environment, um, the opportunities for businesses. Um, you know, these are very much an everyday part of life. Um, and really, I think prior uh, to, you know, 1973, Ireland was obviously an independent country long before then. But the problem was uh, before accession to the EU was that we were still very economically dependent on the UK and struggling to find our, our feet in the international community. And EU membership has really given Ireland the opportunity to do that and has demonstrated that uh, in a, a really, really fantastic way. Um, you know, so these kind of aspects, you know, that the broad are in such a broad spectrum. Um, you know, they, they deal with a vast variety of policy areas from, as I say, from agriculture to uh, research and development from, you know, really, really touches, say, every part of Irish life. That's really what benefits of EU membership to Ireland are and will continue to be, uh, you know, post-Brexit as well and actually potentially might be an opportunity for Ireland going forward. I suppose it's maybe an odd junction at this point then to talk about IREXIT. I mean, within your answer there, you talked about gaining independence from being economically dependent on the UK, but that's one of the main arguments that proponents of IREXIT put forward. In your paper, you described it as highly questionable, but what would what would your view of IREXIT be? Yeah, um, it's very interesting, this IREXIT debate, because I find as an, uh, an, an Irish person, as an Irish scholar living in the UK, that it's a debate that is discussed a lot more, uh, in particular, certainly in the British press, rather than uh, back home in Ireland. And I think the first time you really saw this IREXIT debate coming to the fore was when uh, Nigel Farage paid a visit to Dublin at the beginning of this year. And you're right, the anticipation and the effect of Brexit uh, on the Irish economy kind of really fueled this Irexit debate. But there are some real inherent uh, problems with this. You know, first of all, it was primarily developed as an economic argument, uh, very much implying that kind of post-Brexit Ireland would be left marginalised and peripheral and dependent. And that really is not the case. Uh, we have seen, you know, Ireland is, you know, as I said earlier, when we're talking about benefits of uh, EU membership, Ireland is a, a key player uh, within the European Union, but also in the international stage as well, uh, in terms of foreign direct investment from the US, but also, you know, kind of in terms of its negotiation skills as well. But really, you know, focusing economically on, on that economic argument is is really just too difficult. It, it's very, very narrow. Uh, it doesn't talk about how Ireland has developed from that economic independence on the UK and moved on from that political domination of the UK as well. It also doesn't, as I say, talk about that FDI from the USA um, either. But take away the economic argument. You know, there's a whole political perspective on this as well. The equal partnership between the UK and Ireland as EU member states has really facilitated the peace that we see in Northern Ireland, in particular the Good Friday Agreement. This is one of the reasons why we are having perhaps such difficulty in understanding um, you know, the complexities uh, of uh, the the issue of a hard border. Not It's not particularly difficult for Dublin to understand. It's not particularly difficult for the EU to understand. This understanding is coming from uh, the, the UK stance. And again, you know, going back to public opinion polling data, you know, your barometer data, Red Sea polling has, you know, support for the European Union in Ireland up in the 80%. You know, that is nothing to be sniffed at. 
it's never been that high in the UK. It never has been um, at all. So I really do think that's why the IREXIT debate is, is a real crude caricature, really, of the political and economic situation in Ireland. And it really does fall on kind of inherent past cliches that are unhelpful, really. Uh, talking about cliches, is there not a sense as well, really, in Ireland that uh, an age old trope in Irish political history that, you know, whatever the Brits will do, the Irish will do the opposite? As well, you know, you kind of to kind of bring it right back down to simple terms. Yeah, it's a fair argument, and I think you know one of the things we have seen, I think probably since the December European Council meeting when we uh, closed uh, phase one of uh, Brexit negotiations, was the kind of might of Dublin, number one, but also how probably relations between Dublin, Belfast, and London are at somewhat an all-time low as well and that's you know on the one hand that's very disappointing you know we have worked very very hard to really kind of cultivate a very good working relationship with the UK for many years uh, given the kind of historical legacies but I think what became highlighted in the Brexit debate is that that relationship has been cultivated on an equal footing at the EU level and you remove that EU level and you know relationships do break down There is an argument maybe to say that, um, you know, and the Irish government have come into a little bit of criticism on this about maybe being too hard uh, in their stance with the UK over the the issue of the border and may perhaps have to kind of soften some of those red lines as we move into phase two of negotiations. Because at the end of the day, the other EU member states will want to trading relationship with the UK um, and while they recognise that the uh, border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland's important, you know, they're going to want something of their own. It doesn't directly affect them. So you might see perhaps some softening of that kind of argument um, at the EU level. But I think as well that it's unhelpful to go along those those stance. And I think that relations will improve uh, as time goes on. But it's certainly a very different, you know, working relationship with London at present. That's for sure. So we're coming up to, you know, June is the date um, when uh, a more s- substantial progress, whatever turn of phrase you want to use, has to be made on Northern Ireland. Is Ireland, and we've discussed this on the podcast many times, is Ireland, the Irish government, in danger at the moment with coming to October when it all kind of has to be wrapped up in a bow um, that Ireland gets squeezed on what it actually wants? June is a a very important deadline, but October is the absolutely fundamental deadline. You certainly haven't seen a softening of stance by the Irish government uh, and the EU with regards to that backstop option, which basically effectively says that Northern Ireland will stay part of a or the customs union uh, and single market after the UK leaves the European Union. So on the one hand, there doesn't seem to be a softening of stances. The the compromise has to come from, from London now and has to come from the UK ahead of June. There is a cliff coming. It's coming not in two years, but next March, and there's going to be prolonged uncertainty. There is a real prospect, and we need to deal with this, that there is going to be no flights between the UK and Europe for a period of weeks, months, beyond March 2019. There's a real prospect because if the UK government sticks to its present position, which is ECJ jurisdiction is a red line issue, free movement of people, etc., they are going to leave the European Union and they're going to leave open skies. 
and we're excluded from WTO rules. So there is no fallback to WTO. Dublin is Northern Ireland and the island's airport. We do two out of three people coming onto the entire island of Ireland come in through Dublin airport. It may not be the worst outcome in the world because by September of 2018, when your average British voter is sitting down to work out where he's going on holidays in the summer of 2019, the two options he will have will be drive to Scotland or get a ferry to Ireland. And I love Ireland dearly. I just don't want to spend all my holidays there. And nor does much of the UK population either. Now I'm stranded. Dr. Catherine Simpson just took us through a history lesson of, of Ireland and the EU. Brian, you're, you're no stranger to uh, being branded, you know, Sponger Syndrome. My parents and my family love me, Jack. It's fine. Was that a fair depiction of Ireland? I found it really interesting. You know, we started off with the, the, sponge, the Sponger Syndrome. Ireland matured. You, you used the analogy of kind of growing up, teenager, going to university, etc. And then also it, it, that analogy works quite well. It appears, or what I took from it, was that we got kind of arrogant. We got arrogant in the 2000s. We had loads of money. The EU were telling us, the economy, this isn't going to work, guys. Your corporation tax isn't going to work either. And we were going, no, 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 leave us alone. We rejected two two treaties. Uh, once each, Lisbon and Nice. And then <clears throat> the economic crash came and we went, oh, no, I'm really sorry. Actually, you guys are the right people to deal with these kind of broader world economic issues when the crash comes in. I mean, I mean that, that, that's, that's certainly one point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tension over corporate tax and whether it's a national competence or something that should be done at the EU level has been, well, I mean, the escrow account was opened recently and Apple is paying in the 13 billion. And that was a state aid case rather than a tax case. But that tension still remains between Ireland with its 12.5% low corporate tax rate and the European Union, particularly France. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, spoke about it in the first podcast that Ireland retained the right to set its own corporation tax rate. The other thing as well was the, the voter fatigue she she referenced in terms of nine. Referent, to be honest with you, I actually hadn't realised it was nine. It is a bit obscene. Yeah, I think it's, it's a quirk of our constitution, really, isn't it? It doesn't happen. But nine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, does it happen elsewhere in Europe? I don't, I don't think so. Well, certainly with with Lisbon, there was a feeling that if it had been the case that there was a referendum in either France or the Netherlands, that they would not have passed. Yeah. Um, So there is that to it. No, um, but just nine is is absurd. Yeah, certainly. Eregzit is just, you know, not a runner. It just doesn't make sense in the Irish political context. And that this is because we see the EU not only as the best place to deal with all of these global issues and kind of to work together, but also whatever the Brits do, Ireland will do the opposite. But, you know, a more nuanced take on that is the EU allowed Ireland to become a more independent state and be on an equal footing with the UK and to leave the EU now to go back and be, you know, a a very junior partner in a UK-Ireland relationship outside the EU to an awful lot of Irish people apparently does not make sense. I I, I mean, the other reasons that um, 
Dr. Simpson put forward were that, you know, the single market and access to foreign direct investment. Um, she was very strong as well on the um, public opinion as well um, as a reason not, you know, not to pursue an IRA exit. So, I mean, she, she was quite clear in her reasons not to. I mean, we will speak to proponents of IRA exit in the future um, who may have a different point of view, but public opinion and the single market seem to be the two main reasons that she, she was certainly quite dismissive of, of IRA exit. Yeah. And I think, you know, if the bailout didn't do it for Irish people, it's difficult to see how the UK, even the EU, would. But, you know, stranger things have happened and we're in uncertain political times. So who knows, maybe in four or five years time, we could be leaving the EU as well. And that's it for uh, this latest installment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. Um, If you have any questions or comments, um, please leave it on. Or actually, email us to us. Do we even email? Paddy wants to know Brexit at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.